Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayers. We come to the book of Isaiah once again. Father, we come to you thanking you for your kind invitation. We thank you for that price that was paid. We thank you tonight that we can draw near and we come to give you thanks that tonight the Spirit of God is moving on this earth to build a church and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come and ask you again to speak to us from your words so that we might understand your plan and see our part in it. And we come and trust you for that and we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're in chapter 58 of the book of Isaiah tonight. Um, we're in the last section. We call it the Messianic poem. I wonder if you've noticed up to this point that it's never said Messiah. It's never said anointed one. We come to this chapter 58. You come to the first chapter in the last section. The last 27 chapters are divided into three nine-chapter divisions. Let me just review what we've already seen so we can get a feel for what is happening in this passage tonight. Um, in the first section, if you were here, you remember it was all about promise. When it came to salvation, it was a promise. I will pour water on him that's thirsty. I'll never leave you there, he says. I, I'm going to be strong on your behalf. I will act on your behalf. It's all promise about what he would do, how he would save. When it came to the discussion concerning God, it was all about the eternal, the true God, as opposed to all the idols that men worship. And that was the picture of the first section. When we move to the center section, mood kind of changes. The emphasis is on God actually providing a way so that He can fulfill the promise. In order for that promise to be made real to us, in order for God to act on the behalf of men, a sacrifice had to be given, and no Old Testament sacrifice was sufficient. No lamb was enough. And so he says this, that there's a servant coming. And this is where instead of the, the God as opposed to the idols, the focus comes to this person, the servant. And to an action that that servant would take, the very center of the chapters, is the chapter in which that servant offers himself to God as an offering. Now again, as we go on today, I want to just note that and a very important verse that falls all the way to the end of the book of Isaiah is this. It has to do with human beings and what our situation is and what God has to deal with. It says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That word way becomes extremely important throughout this book. And we're going to see it again tonight. But that's where the emphasis has been. When we get to the last chapters... The mood changes kind of drastically. It, it may be hard to pick it up at first time, but you read it once, you say, well, yeah, sure enough, that's what's going on. Because now it's as if God takes the, he takes the field. When we're thinking about God, first chapters, as opposed to God opposed the idols, in the middle, the suffering servant of Jehovah. But at the end here, it is the warrior king stepping forth. It is in these chapters that Jesus is presented as the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He, that's the Father, has anointed me. And it's the anointing is to carry out the purpose of God. You see, this last section is all about God now stepping in to do it. There was a plan we saw at the very beginning of our study here. God has a plan that He had from the very beginning. It has a definite end. 
a picture. When he started this plan, way back at the fall, he already knew what the end was going to be. He could talk to Abraham about it and tell Abraham how he was involved in that because he knows where it's going to end. He could talk to Isaiah about it and tell him about the servant of Jehovah who would give himself because he knew that was coming to pass. Now, in the last section, there is a picture. This is the, it's the way it's presented of God now taking the field and moving towards that goal. When you get to the end of the book, the last chapter, he is the Lord seated on his throne. And it's all finished now, and everything is divided. We're in where the groups are set, the, the the plan is finished. That's very important. Now that's where we're going, and it, it picks up pace there. And there's God does this, and he does there's a lot of action in this in this section of God taking steps to bring to pass everything that he had planned, because he's not only promising, he's not only making a provision, but he's going to finish this out to the end. Now, that's important for us because that's where we fit into things. Now, it's interesting, the first chapter, if you remember, if you look on your paper, the very top it says this, a call to spiritual vitality, a call to spiritual vitality. And maybe I'm, I'm ruining this by jumping way ahead. But hey, here's, here's what's going to happen in this chapter. It's the beginning of it. God is going to be doing all this. And here's what he's saying. You and I have a chance to participate in it. You're on this earth. You're going to spend time on this earth. We're all alive. Okay, so we all have a life. And that life is going to mean something to someone. And his thought here is, I'm inviting you. Now, he's speaking to Israelites in the Old Testament, but it still applies to us. I'm inviting you to join me in the executing of this plan and the bringing to pass of the purpose that counts, of being some, meaning something to that plan which ends in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous chapter. But all people who are involved in religion are not ready for that. And that's where the chapter is about, because um, it fits into a period of time. Again, we... Back up here just a moment. We said at the very beginning that the book of Isaiah could be applied in a number of different places. It had to mean something to the people of Isaiah's day. It has to mean something during the captivity. It meant something when the Lord was alive on this earth. It speaks about that and it speaks to us. This particular section, this first chapter, I believe takes us back to Isaiah's own time, to the people that he is speaking to in his day. This is what has happened in his day. Because of the work of Hezekiah, there was revival. But revival doesn't, it brings people back towards God, but there is always that tendency after that for people to drift away from it. Um, it's, it's the reason we have Wednesday night prayer meeting. Right? You know why we have Wednesday night prayer meeting? Because there was a revival in the 1800s. It was a prayer revival. And all across the, particularly the eastern part of the United States, prayer meetings broke out. It was a prayer revival. At one point in that revival, 10% of the population of the city of New York met for prayer every day. How about that? That would be a different day. And it, 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 that's how God was moving when people got together in these prayer meetings. It was at that time that Wednesday night prayer meeting came, but it was every night. And eventually they cut it back because that, the fervor cuts back and they move it down and down and down and it finally ends up a Wednesday night prayer meeting. 
It's there. It is the remnant of something bigger. It's the remnant of something that happened before. I'm not saying anything wrong with the situation today. I'm just saying that that's kind of the way things go. God moves by His Spirit and He brings people to a certain understanding of His ways. And then following that, the form continues. The energy very often diminishes because people can get confused here. And one of the problems of that situation is you can believe that you're still where you used to be even though you're not living like you used to live. You're going through the same ritual as you used to go through, but you're not experiencing it. Now, that's what had happened in this day. Hezekiah had led the nation in revival. Some people followed him, some people didn't, but they all followed him outwardly. And they had a big time on that. There were still many who were left over from that. Now, it's the time of Manasseh, and it's starting to disappear, but there were still many there. Micah and and Isaiah are contemporaries. They probably knew each other. There is some indication in, in those two books, if you compare them, that they, they must have either listened to each other or you can just say the Spirit of God was saying the same thing. At one point, they quote somebody other than Isaiah or Micah, and they both use exactly the same quote. We don't know who they were quoting, but it's neither, their, it's neither one of their actual writing. It's somebody else. But Micah has a similar passage And he deals with a similar thing. One of the dangers, again, of that day is that people lose track of where they actually are. It's the confusion of going through the ritual and believing that that's sufficient. You should compare. I won't take a long time tonight to do it, but you should compare this this chapter to Micah chapter 6. It has a very similar pattern to it. Now, Micah sums it up this way, because here's a group of people who say, what does God really want from me? That's what they're saying. What does God want from me? And they're very generous in what they're ready to give. Uh, if I had 10,000 rivers of oil, would that be enough to, to, meet, to take care of my sin? But they finally get down to this. If I offer up my own child as an offering, will that be enough? Because the question comes up at the beginning with, what shall I come before the Lord? And offer him in light of my sin. And God says this to them. That's not what I'm after. This is what I'm after. He's told you. All right, this is the man speaking in there. We won't go into how it comes up. But the, the prophet speaks to the people who make that comment. And he says this. He's told you what's good. And what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. If you do that, you're in line with my purposes. Now, with that in mind, and that because that's the same time that Isaiah is speaking here, the same kind of people. Let's look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. That first section there, the top one, it says the danger of religious formality. That takes through verses 1 through 5. I'll just note that um, the sections are 1 through 5. The second section is 6 through 12, and 13 and 14 are in the last section. Let me just read it, because I think this one actually just, it kind of preached itself. We'll make comment on Isaiah. He's a pretty good preacher. So here we go. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice, this is God speaking to Isaiah, like a trumpet, and declare to my people their transgressions and to the house of Jacob their sins. They're in trouble and they don't know it. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways. Now, they're not really seeking him. 
You can go through all kinds of formalities to seek God. You can even put verses all over your walls and delight in the Bible and still not be right with him. That's, this is the same thing Mike, excuse me, Micah says. They delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness, as if they are actually righteous, and has not forsaken the ordinances, excuse me, the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. They're at their praying. And this is part of what he says here. And the same thing comes up in Micah. They are counting on the fact that I'm their God and I'm close to them, even though their conduct isn't what it ought to be because he started off by saying they were, I want you to tell them where they're wrong. All right. Now, that's what they delight in. But then they ask a question. Verse three. Now, this, if you have an ESV, it actually reads a lot better in the ESV. I'll just say that New American Standard tries to keep right with the, the pattern here, and it actually becomes very clumsy and hard to understand. But we'll, we'll note this here as we go. Verse 3, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you don't notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard your workers. Now, what he does is pictures these people as those who are wealthy and who are running a business. Their prayer is related to their business dealings. Did you have to understand this? What you're praying about are things that have to do with making more money. And you're asking me to do certain things, and you're surprised that I don't do them. It is kind of shocking you. And when I don't act on your behalf as you pray for these things, you can't tell me you've lost track of why this is happening. See, they should have known. They should have known why things weren't happening, but they don't know. The ability of the human heart to get religiously confused is amazing. Our ability to get into sin and not recognize that there's a problem is amazing. God wants to deal with them there and he wants to speak to them. All right. He says, on that day of your fast, you seek your own desire. That means you're, you're, you're trying to promote your own business. That's why you're fasting. Because it's not going the best way. And again, he has two things. There's two problems that come up here. Number one, he says, you're, you're driving your workers. You're fasting. Of course you're fasting. You have the time to fast. You have the time to take off. And back while you're fasting, everybody else is working. And while you're, while you're fasting, you also have your eye on your competition. You're trying to outrun your competition. Later on, he's going to talk about the, the strife that this is causing. It's the picture of people who are in economic competition with one another praying praying it's like when you're a kid you know when you, we, i remember mr goes up at his house one time and their question came up about whether you could pray while you were having playing a game you know am i allowed to play a game and pray that i'll win you know it, it's one of those things we all have you know and say ha ha little kid why would he think that way but that's what we do in our own lives right it's too easy to say that god bless me and mine knowing that if he does, that will hurt so-and-so. But somebody has to win, right? Why not me? All right. For the glory of God, of course. For the glory of God, all right? And that's, that's kind of the thought that's in this thing. They're praying for this, but it all has to do with them. 
and they're fasting. Verse 4, Behold, you fast for contention and strife to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast again. You don't, can't, this is a better way to put this when you get done with this, that that kind of fast won't get your her, voice heard. That's, that's about the way you should put it there. It's very complicated here in this verse. But it means this. That kind of fasting won't succeed. It just won't make it. Right? Is, is it a fast like that which I choose? This is verse 5. A day for a man to humble himself? Because they've, they've said that they've humbled themselves. Is that what I'm really after? See, they're they are going through this ritual of humbling themselves. Basically, you're really not humbling yourself. Is it for the bowing one's head like a reed? For the spreading out of sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Now, this is very similar to what the Lord says. You know, beware of practicing your righteousness before men, to be seen of men. All right? That's why this is the same kind of thing. The day in which... I put on the sackcloth. I spread out the ashes. I'm going through this ritual. I'm humbling myself before God. Everybody can see it because I'm going through all that ritual. Is that what God's after, he says? All right. And in verse 6, Is this not the fast which I choose? Is this not the fast which I choose? At this point, Isaiah begins to talk to him about what real vitality with God is all about. It is easy for us in the evangelical world not to listen to what he is actually saying here. It is easy for us to spiritualize what he is saying and not take it literally true. All right, here's what he says. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness? Now, the difference between the way they're fasting and what he says is the is the right way to fast is this, that the focus of their fasting was their own well-being. He says the focus of your fasting should be the relieving of real pain and real sin and bondage on this earth. You're going to give yourself, if you're going to humble yourself and cry out to God, make it about something other than yourself. This is what I choose. Now, he's sick. remember, this is the king getting ready to go out. That's kind of the way you have to look at this. The king is ready to start out into war. Who wants to follow in his train? There's that, that old hymn by the same man who wrote, uh, Holy, Holy, Holy. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar. Who follows in his train? That's what they're in calls. Who's going to join me? He says, now, if you want to join me in that, this is tremendous, the opera here. If you want to join me in this, here's what it's going to be about. It's going to be about dealing with wickedness, not that you're going out to slay wickedness, but helping people who are trapped in sin to get out of that trap. Helping people who are in bondage get out of that bondage. And then he goes on, and we need to face the, the reality here. Let's keep reading. Is this not the fast? Let's just read down through here. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide, divide your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into the house. 
when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Isn't that what I'm really after? And uh, again, I want to say, I think sometimes in the evangelical world, we try to make this all about preaching the gospel to people, and that is a key element. But the hurt of people on this earth bothers God. People who are really oppressed, it bothers God. People who are cheated, people who are misjudged, where justice doesn't exist, it bothers God. And the program that he has here is to release this earth from that pressure, to release the earth from the pain that it's under because tonight it is wrong. Things are wrong. Now, that's what he's, that's what he's doing. And that's why he came. That's why the king is going to leave and that's the description of what's going on. Now, if I want to join him in that, he says this, I am going to have to become involved in that. And what will that mean? Well, all we like sheep have gone astray, right? We've turned everyone to our own way. But what he's saying, the iniquity that comes from that, we've got to give up on that. But when I give up on that, what happens to me? I still am alive. I'm still breathing. I still have energy. If I'm not using it for all those things, what am I going to use it for? I am going to use it. This is what he's saying here. We should use it for the people that are sitting right around us. The people that are living right around us who are in trouble, who are spiritually in trouble, who are physically in trouble, because that's where the heart of God is. And if you're going to be in his train, if you're going to be in this warfare, then you're going to you're going to have to get into that. This is real important for us because we've, we've been thinking about this great opportunity we have in a sense. But what's holding us back our own way, our own way. A plans that we have, and let me just say, a couple weeks ago, when, well, it was a little while ago, it was right after Thanksgiving, I know time flies by, but right after Thanksgiving, we began to think about this, we talked to students about it, the Lord gives us that great opportunity to join Him, to join Him on His path, but if you join Him on His path, you have to know what that path is going to be about, and it's not going to be about you, it's not going to be about me, it's going to be about other people and the needs that they have, and reaching out there. And when you start to do that, you will have to let go of your own life. Right? So he's saying that's, that's what's going to take place. Now, I don't want to take too long on that. I think it's pretty obvious. But listen to what he says then in verse 8. This is a very positive passage. It's a call. It's not a rebuke for spiritual... Um, Formality, it is a call to spiritual vitality. Because he, he hasn't even mentioned the sin yet. He just says, this is, you, you've been, well, I hadn't said too much about it. But he says in verse 8, if you do that, then your light will break out like dawn. Then light will come to you like dawn. And your recovery will speedily spring forth. And your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you go through all that, then your light will shine and your recovery will come. Remember way back at the beginning of this book, it said this, those that wait on the Lord do what? Her beginning of this section. 
Those that wait on the Lord will gain a new kind of strength. A new kind. They will do what? They'll mount up with wings like eagles. And he's starting to talk about that right here. And he's pointing out this very real thing. There is no real walk with God that doesn't involve helping other people. It isn't there. It does not exist. There is no way that I can be proper with right in a right relationship with God and not have a heart for other people. But if I get if I come to that place, and that will cost me, it will cost me. But if I come there, he says, then your light will shine. It's a wonderful picture here. He's implying that the people actually don't get it. But there's also the other side to this light picture. Not only do they not get it, but you know and I know that things are better in the light than they are in the dark. The problem that comes to your mind at 2.30 in the morning will seem better at 8 o'clock in the morning. There is a sense that when the sun is coming up, it's better. It's better. There is something that invigorates your heart when the sun comes up under normal circumstances. It is what he's just talking about human experience. He says, if you come to this place, you're going to have a spiritual experience where it will be like the dawn coming. And your inward experience goes that way. He goes on to say that not only will you have your light shine, but your recovery, your recovery, you're going to start to find life coming back in. Your recovery is going to come. What else does it say? It says then something else is going to take place. Then you're going to start to see answers to prayer. What's one of the biggest reasons we don't see answers to prayer? We're not asking for the right things. Our focus is wrong. We're not in line with God himself. His line is the needs of people, the real needs. And again, as they're outlined here, spiritual needs, oppressions that they're under. And we have to be involved in all that. He says, if you get there, then I'll meet you along those lines. All right. Now, that's the first half of it. I'm going real rapidly through that because I want to get to the second part. Because he says, not only is there a, a need there. If you come to that place and you look at people's real need, what you're going to do, you're going to meet God. But then in verse 13, and I want to just spend some time. That's the one I want to spend the most time on. Verse 13, he goes to another subject. All right. It says, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it desisting from your own ways and seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now in the book of Isaiah, we saw last week that the idea of the Sabbath is tightly connected to a right relationship with God. Let's stop for a moment and remember what the Sabbath is about. We want to keep what it would have been to them. When God finished the creation, the last thing he did, or as he finishes the creation, on the sixth day, the last part of that creation is the creation of man. It seems to be late in the day, but again, we don't want to press that too far, but it's at the day. 
Um, the next day, it says that he set apart this next day and he called it holy. It was his day, a day when he would rest. It's important for us to note that man's first full day, this is number one day for them, you know, the first full day, was the Sabbath. It's the seventh day of the week in that creation week, but it is his first full day. And in that full day, he would have the privilege. The work will start tomorrow. He has the privilege of being there with God. And then he he gives a command that that day, he sets it apart right there as being holy. Later on, in the giving of the law, one of the laws was that you are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All right? You can't make it holy. But you can keep it holy, and to keep something holy means to just do it, do with it what God says to do with it. That's how you keep something holy. God makes the requirements on it. He sets the, the boundaries for it. And here's what you do to keep the Sabbath day holy. This is for the Jewish nation as he speaks to them. They are to not work. You stop all of your labor. And not only do you stop your labor, but your wife stops your la- her labor. And your children stop their labor. And the people who work for you stop the labor. And the people who are from a foreign country who are staying with you stop their labor. In other words, on that day, everything stops. That's all it says. For one day, stop from everything you're doing. Stop your course of life. It is never stated what you're supposed to do, except to rest, because you're not working, right? But it is implied over and over again that you will stop, and on that day, you will direct your attention towards the Lord, right? Now, that's a hard thing to do. I'm, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, but I'll put it right here. I don't believe that you can make a solid case that this continues into the New Testament times. I just don't believe that. I'd love to say it was. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. But I don't think you can say that he, again, there are different views of it. and We can't put our foot down and say this is for sure there. All right. So I'm not going to try to make that. But, but here's a point I want to ask you. I just, just think we have to think tonight together. Have you ever tried to take a 24-hour period and put your own things aside completely. It is no small project. Now listen to what he says here. This is what he says. If you will do certain things, and the way he says, i got to get it right here. If because of the Sabbath day you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, all right? Your own pleasure on that day. And call the Sabbath a delight. Now, there's that, that right there. I mean, I remember I was a little kid. Okay, I'm a little kid, and I go to church. I have to go to church. I always had to go to church. I think it was this big when I got to church the first time. And, and I never knew anything but church. And I remember a church service was one pure agony. So the idea of delighting on Sunday, what do you got to do? You got to go to the church on Sunday. And, and my mother saw to it that there were, in, in those days, in my home, there were Sunday rules. I don't know whether they're biblical or not, but they were, they were Nuremberg, 
<laughs> we had them. We had them. You didn't do this, and 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 you, there was this, again, they weren't real tough, but, but they meant turning aside from the playing things and a lot of the other things. I'm saying that, I'm not trying to promote that. I'm just saying, I was a little kid, and I knew what it was like, oh, no, I can't do this, can't do that. I mean, get it done now, because, and, and, and that rule, those rules weren't on my neighborhood friends. All right, that was always a tough one, because we were kind of way out in left field on this one. But anyway, everybody else is out doing other things. We don't do them. We don't do them. It was one long day. Sunday was one long day. Now, again, it's what we didn't do. That was the key, is what we didn't do. But again, from my parents' perspective, particularly from my mother's perspective and from my grandfather's perspective, it was a day to seek the Lord. So they did things like read their Bible. I wasn't interested in that at that time. All right, so... But the point is this. It's not an easy thing to do, right? Turn from your... Do you try it? You try to have a day in which you put aside your work. One day. Just do it for one day. And don't think about your job. Or your hobby. Because he talks about your own pleasure here. He's not talking about stopping your work. Put aside your hobby. Hmm. And then he says, on top of it, delight in it. Not only go through the process of making sure, I'm going to keep my mind on this, I'm going to keep it on that, I'm going to keep it on this, but I'm going to delight in this. I am going to make this day a delight with God. That, I'm going to just tell you right now, that is not easy to do. And they had to do it every week. Why did they have to do it every week? Now, again, I'm not God, so I can't tell you everything, but we need to note this. This was designed by God for the well-being of the human race. As I said, man was not made for the Sabbath. God didn't create man because there was a Sabbath and somebody had to keep it. Sabbath was made for man. This is a good thing. It's a good thing that we have here. Why is it a good thing? Because in that day was the opportunity to orient myself once again towards what really mattered, and that was my relationship with God. Right? To come back to what really matters. To stop. And the fact that nobody is working, I won't be disturbed. And it was in a whole it was in a whole nation. If they would have done it, they never did do it. But anyway, if they would have done it, then nobody down the street would have been working. And the stores wouldn't be open. And you couldn't do anything else. And you would have a chance to press all that stuff off of your mind, which is so hard to get off of your mind, right? I teach a course on prayer. You know what one of the, probably the most common question in prayer class is? What do I do with the distractions? And that's a good question. Because if a person even tries to spend an hour doing this, what do you find? You remember what you have to do. You remember your, you know, what you didn't close over there, what you needed to get there, what's going to have to happen tomorrow, what's going to... And your wonderful time with God is spent thinking about all those things. Now, we're not here tonight to figure out how to get rid of all that. I'm just saying that it is not easy. And so God says for these people, spend a day. Just take a day. I wonder how long it took during that day to get all that off. But it, again, there it is. Now again, I want to say in a New Testament experience, I don't think that's absolutely required. But we have to ask ourselves, if we're not keeping that day, what are we doing 
to replace the need that we have, to meet the need of our heart to get our minds on God. Again, Vine, who wrote a, the same man who wrote his expository dictionary of New Testament words, also wrote a, a commentary on the book of Isaiah. He believes that we have a Sabbath rest, that there is a, that we're in a Sabbath, that as the people of God we're in a Sabbath. That's fine, but what does that mean? How does that translate into something which practically focuses my heart on God so I can begin to think about Him, which gets all the trash that this world brings into our lives? Well, not trash, but just all those things that clutter up the, the mess inside of our souls. What helps us get that out of the way? Well, again, we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing to enable ourselves to go this route? And the reason I want to say that you ought to do something about it is this. Listen to the end there. He says, if I do that, if you stop your own pleasure, and he says here, even speaking your own word, which implies that you're going to be concerned about the words of God there. But you're not even going to speak your own words. What a What a promise. Verse 14, it's got to be one of the great promises of, the, of this whole section. Then you will take delight in the Lord. Now, that's an interesting way he puts it. He doesn't command them to take delight in the Lord. He says, if you will just take the time to get the rest off your mind and be, again, we're going to come into the Sabbath experience, in doing that, in putting everything aside, putting your pleasure, getting that off your mind, it says when that happens, you will take delight in the Lord. You're going to take it. You're going to get there. That's a promise. That's not a command to take that. You will have that experience. And then it says this. This is one of the ones that I remember Mr. Carroll speaking to me many, 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 many years ago. Say, don't don't kid yourself on this one. If you honor God, if you put Him first, He will He'll do certain things for you. You're not earning anything. I can't get into the presence of God because I set aside time to be there. I can go to God because there was a sacrifice. Let's be real clear about that. This doesn't earn me anything. But the fact that I can't earn it doesn't mean that I can't obtain it. The fact is that because of that sacrifice, the potential to really know God is put into my lap. But it doesn't come there by nature because that's so. I have to actually appropriate that. I have to take hold of that. I have to do take the actions which are necessary. Now the access to God is there. But the experience of that will depend on what I do. And he says here, if you'll come in there, then something's going to happen. I'm going to make you. How about this one? I am going to make you ride in the high places of the earth. You are going to know what it is to be in the high places. Now, what's the high places? Thus is, all right, the high and lofty one. That's only a chapter ago. Who inhabits eternity whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and the holy place. But I dwell there, what? With him also is a humble and contrite spirit in order to revive the spirit of that one. 
I'm going to cause you. When you get in here, you're going to delight in the Lord, and here you're going to begin to experience something. You're going to have something which, which does to you, which causes you to ride in the high place, which causes you, again, put a different way. Let's look at a different part of Isaiah. It's, he repeats himself in different pictures. Those that wait upon the Lord will gain a new strength. They will run. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Mount up with those wings. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and won't collapse. They're going to have that experience. Why are they going to have that experience? Because what it means to dwell in the presence of God. The invitation here is to these people. That's why it says this is a call to vital spirituality. It's a call to vitality, spiritual vitality. It is a call to come because God is getting ready to move and He's asking them to join Him on that path. He's asking us to join Him on that path. And He says this, And I will feed you with a heritage of Jacob, your father. I will feed you with the Heritage of Jacob, your father. Now, at the very beginning, we talked about that. But what is the heritage of Jacob? Well, in a sense, that has to do with the Old Testament and, and the nation of Israel. But it's much bigger than that. Because the heritage of Jacob is also the heritage of Abraham because God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because this promise that he gave to Abraham, he renewed to Isaac and he renewed it to Jacob and then the nation grew out of that. So if we wanted to find out what is the heritage of Jacob, we have to go back to Abraham and the promise that he gave him that if he would come out, if he would follow him, what's going to happen? He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing. And through you, it says, all the ends of the earth will be blessed. All the ends of the earth are going to be blessed. That is the heritage of Jacob to be a participant in the purpose of God coming to pass on this earth so that all the nations, that's me tonight, blessed because of that promise. That's you blessed because of that promise. Now, not only is he going to do that, but he's saying to this group of people in Isaiah's day, people we don't even know their names, he says, if you will, Take, make this day a special day. I'll cause you to ride in the high places, and you will inherit. You're going to join into this. You're going to, you're going to be part of the heritage there, of the bringing to pass of that on this earth. We're all going to be finished one day. I wonder what's going to happen for us when our lives are finished. That's a question I asked when I was 20 years old. What is it going to make? What difference is it going to make when I'm finished? If I do have to appear before God, what am I going to say about my life? It's kind of what started me thinking about the things of God. What are you going to say to God? Here's a great privilege. God says, I would like you to join me in carrying out my purpose. And it could be that at the other end of my experience, the other end of your experience, the other end of these people's experience, the other end of anybody's experience who wants to join him, that it will count for the glory of God, that what I do on this earth could make eternal difference. That when this culture is completely obliterated, when everything that has to do with this culture is obliterated, when all the things that people think are worthwhile on this earth is obliterated, something is still going to be there. The mountain will come down which will smash out the kingdoms of this earth, which will ruin that 
statue, which is all to the glory of mankind, remember from the book of Daniel, and it's going to fill up the earth. But there will be something in that. We can participate. We can have something built there. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on the earth. Now, that's what he's calling them to here. It's a call to do that because they have a privilege to join. But what will that mean? Let's recount what is it. It will mean that I give up taking care of myself on this earth and focus on taking care of the real needs of other human beings. It has to mean that. It will secondly mean what? I will give up on worrying about my pleasure and I will begin to spend time getting to know the eternal God in real worship, in vital worship, so that I not only go through the lip service of worship, but I actually take the time, whatever it takes, to get everything else off my mind so that I am coming to know Him. And if I do that, if we do that, and we can do it because of the sacrifice of the Lord on our behalf, we have the open door to do it. If we do it, we will find the enabling of the Spirit. We will find that that life, for us particularly in the New Testament times, that life of Christ will be manifest within us. We're going to find that God does wonderful things. You have the chance to participate. So again, I would ask you tonight, it's a great opportunity. You have the chance. If you'll do it, you will come to this end. Right? That's the promise. Look at it again. If you will give yourself to other people, if you let God take you to that place, he'll make light to shine. And you'll know what it is to interact with him in prayer. More importantly for me for tonight, if we make knowing him a delight to us and actually carve out time, it will take time in which we put other things completely out so that we can be in his presence, we will find delight in him we will find him lifting us to a plane that other people don't live on, a plane where we're in the high places of this earth, and we will have the great privilege of participating with him in the building of a kingdom that really counts. It's a great opportunity. Next week we'll start, we'll look at the Lord taking off to do it. But tonight he asks us, are we ready to join him in that? Are we ready not only to admire what he did, but to become participants in the program. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks for our great opportunity. Again, we're praying that tonight you will stir our hearts, every one of us. Father, we might see clearly where we are and rise up to follow. We're asking you to bring us along. You've spoken Now may your word have its effect, and we come and trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.